Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and this, my guest today is my good friend, David Buckland. <laughs> and uh, I say he's my good friend, not because we've grown up together or spent hours and hours and hours together, but um, I feel an affinity with David, and we've sort of grown close through electronic media over the last couple of years, sending back and forth tons of emails. David has helped me tremendously with the BatGap website. He's very good with technical things, but he also has a great deal of spiritual wisdom and experience. He has a blog called Davidya, which is sort of a play on words because his name is David and Vidya means knowledge in Sanskrit. So it's some knowledge from David. <laughs> Although he doesn't claim to have originated it. No, no, a friend of mine gave me it as a nickname and I found out the meaning later. And David is one of these people who has been fairly reluctant to do an interview, which is always a good sign that um, he'd be a great guest on the show because uh, he is just you know, he doesn't proclaim himself to be a spiritual teacher and everything or anything, and has wanted to keep a fairly low profile. But finally, he, he decided to do an interview. And, and the context of this is that I'm up in British Columbia. We're now at a retreat place where David and I are going to be doing a retreat with Lauren and Lucia Hoff. We're looking out over a kiwi orchard, and maybe I'll get some footage of the place. It's very beautiful. It's a kiwi lodge near Ladysmith, British Columbia. On Vancouver Island. On Vancouver Island. I always like to do interviews in person if possible, although over Skype is fine, but somehow there's just a, an even deeper mind meld when you can actually just sit with a person and have a conversation as opposed to doing it over Skype. At least that's what I find. So I'm, I'm really pleased to be here. And uh, I think you're going to enjoy this interview. David has a lot um, of wisdom to share. Um, so people usually like to sort of get a sense of who the guest is, what their background is, in a sense what qualifications they have for being on the show, simply because anybody can spout philosophy. You know, anybody can read a bunch of Advaita books, for instance, and learn how to talk non-dual. <laughs> but, um, you know... Dualistically. Uh, dualistically. <laughs> but, you know, as I've quoted many, many times on the show, uh, there's a Tibetan proverb which says, don't mistake understanding for realization. And it goes on to say, don't mistake realization for liberation. And so I, perhaps if we were to sketch out the course of your path, your spiritual path, over the last decades, it would give people a sense of who you are in that respect and what qualifications you have for talking about what we're going to be talking about. Okay. First, though, I would like to invite listeners to consider they have a choice here. You can, of course, listen with the mind and hear a person tell a story, or you can settle into a quieter space and listen from the quietness to the quietness that's there, the silence that's speaking and the silence that's listening. There's much more magic in that part of it. Of course, if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it, just <laughs> enjoy the interview. But uh, there is that option you have for how you listen it makes a difference. I guess the spiritual part of, of my story uh, starts my late teens. I got an interest in consciousness and you know brain stuff, and I uh, was reading up about that and started running into references to meditation and, and uh, didn't know anything about that. And then I saw a poster for TM Transcendental Meditation, and I went out and uh, to a lecture and uh, you know I, that was interesting. I didn't really relate to it too much, but they the science was was they had some you know a booklet on some of the scientific research and it. Uh, I found it, you know, compelling, so I thought I'd give it a try. 
on my first meditation, boom, you know, into this really peaceful space, you know, kind of a foggy but light space. Yeah, I was really impressed. So I pretty quickly became a keener and started going to... A keener? A keener, yeah. Like, What's that? Someone uh, who's keen? Yeah, yeah, someone who's, uh, you know... Gung-ho? Uh, gung-ho, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Took some weekend retreats and uh, courses and went to a bunch of lectures and all that kind of stuff. And I guess about nine months after I started, I was in northeast France and on a six-month retreat to go deeper and learn to teach the meditation, TM. Courchevel? Battelle. Battelle. Yeah. A little after your time on your TTC. Yeah, so that, by that time, things had shifted a little bit. Uh, it was mostly videotapes yeah. from the earlier courses a couple of years earlier, like you were on. So the first three months did a lot of purification. What, what was that like, what, well, the purification? Well, I was an anxious kid, and so uh, lots of anxiety pouring out. <laughs> a lot of restlessness. Uh, there's a fair bit of memorization in that part of the program, and so kind of like trying to memorize while you're... Like you know, purging. Oh, that's purging. Oh, like, <laughs> Anyways, you know, it was, it was fine, though. And, and uh, at a certain point, it started having little brief, clear bits where um, the witness kicked in. And the witness is kind of a... It's like uh, an observer mode. You kind of shift into this observing, whereas, you know, usual perception is you're, is you're a person here experiencing the world, but in the uh, witnessing, you kind of take a step back, and you are awareness observing the person observing the world. Yeah, uh, and let's just dwell on that for a second, because it's not like you're a person observing a person observing <laughs> the world. No. Uh, it's not like astral projection, where you're oh, no, separating no. one aspect of individuality from the rest of it and standing no. apart. Elaborate on well, yeah, what it, is the witness. You're, you're shifting into consciousness itself, observing the person experiencing. It's, right. You're shifting into your deeper nature that's under, underneath the mind and the emotions and all the, those layers of, of experience. And your deeper nature is not merely individual. Right. It's a more universal... It's everyone's universal. deeper nature. Yeah. Same. A shared same yeah. consciousness. Yeah. Light that is one, though the lamps be many. Yes. And so here and there kind of came in and out a few times. And, uh, in and out of witnessing. Yeah. Yeah. So in other words, it would, it would persist for days sometimes? At that point, no. It was mostly for hours. Glimpses. Yeah. yeah. Little glimpses here and there. But it was, an, you know, it was a precursor. And then in the second half, we went a little deeper, and at a certain point, we did what was called rounding, essentially, which is cycles of yoga, asanas, pranayama, and, and meditation. And if anyone remembers the song Dear Prudence by the Beatles, there's a refrain that goes, look around, round, round. They were referring to rounding, actually, yeah. <laughs> on the course exactly. they, they did with Maharishi in India. So I was on the floor, face down, doing yoga, and all of a sudden there was this brilliant, blast of white light blew out all perception for just for a moment and then the perception started to come back again and for a moment I could see through the floor and the wall of the room below out onto the grounds it was kind of like oh that's interesting it was like some bit of flash you know and, and I didn't think too much of it and then I continued on and went to my meditation and that but then it became apparent after that that the witness was stayed and it never did stop after that it became a constant background continuity underlying all experience. What happened when you slept at night? Well, that was kind of interesting, actually. At first, you're basically that witness stays through waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. Mm -hmm. And so at first, you know, I'm dreaming, and I start manipulating the dreams and that kind of stuff. And lucid dreaming? Uh, yeah, kind of like lucid dreaming. And then in going to deep sleep, watching the body fall asleep and become like this immovable lump and, mm -hmm. and uh, just basically being hypervigilant for a few days, uh, over-observing and that. And then I realized that if I was observing the mind sleeping, 
the mind was still awake. Which, is, really, which is the question I was about to ask when yeah, you said that. So, it wasn't yeah. really, yeah, because the senses were There's blocked. There's some individuation still there. Yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah. you know, uh, so, so kind of I realized it was unnecessary and just kind of relaxed into it and, and then there was just awareness. And so the body would go to sleep and the mind would go to sleep and there was just this continuity of, of yeah. awareness. So um, during that continuity of awareness, was it like I am aware of my the awareness of the body, or was it complete like no sense of the body whatsoever, just awareness in and of itself by itself, pure awareness? Yes, it was awareness just by itself, kind of behind. Not perceiving anything because there's nothing to perceive at that point because the senses of perception right. are shut down. Yeah, so it's just observing. Well, observing isn't even the right word there. Just kind of like presence. And, and that sense of continuity, that was the, the thing I, I really noticed, but just there was a continuity. And let me ask never, you this, if, if it's just presence, and there's no sensory activity going on, no cognition, no cognitive functions going on, how do you even know that that presence is there? But who knows oh, well, that that there's, there's a bit, there? there'll be things come up where a dream, a bit of a dream will happen, or some noise in the room will, will raise you up out of sleep a little bit, and, and then there's a little bit more going on, and then it settles back down again. And just that sense of continuity, just that sense of never, because there was a distinct shift, you know, that before there, were, there was a certain style of experience, and then this is a completely different style of experiencing. And so the distinctive difference never shifted back. So is it kind of like, there's a, a, a bubbling up of some activity, some dream or something, yeah. and as it bubbles, there's a realization of, oh, this presence, which is here now in the midst of this little dream, has been here previous to this, it's been here all along, but now there's some cognitive function that's just gotten enlivened, and I recognize the presence has been here all along. Is there anything of that flavor? Yeah, kind of like that, but it's not, not really thinking about that. Well, that's a big, just, long, yeah, elaborate. Yeah. <laughs> it just sort of is. Just a know? recognition. Yeah, just a sense of, of isness or being yeah. there that's always there. And it's interesting, you, you become, the, the process becomes much clearer. You can actually observe the body waking up and the mind coming online, the ego waking up. And so there, there's sort of the sense of me shows up again, mm -hmm. which is gone during deep sleep. It's kind of interesting in a, in a certain kind of way. In deep sleep, we're, we're basically egoless. Mm -hmm. And that happens to us every day. But the actual process of waking up is a whole different, yeah. <laughs> whole different thing. I think Shankara said something about how during deep sleep, we sort of reside in the transcendent, but the, the vast majority of people aren't aware of it. But the enlightened maintain that awareness yeah. during deep sleep. Yeah. There's something, and didn't he say that that's why sleep is so, one of the reasons why sleep is so rejuvenating, that we're actually sort of resting in our true nature, albeit in an unconscious way for most people. Yeah, and it's also useful to make a note here in the TM teaching that Maharishi taught was that witnessing full-time, witnessing deep sleep was the key marker for cosmic consciousness or what, what is more commonly called self-realization. However, in my case, and I know several others, there wasn't a, a liberation. Uh, there wasn't a, that actual shift. Uh, it was like a a close but no cigar. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of that the witness came online, but the ego remained identified. Mm -hmm. It took me a little time to get clear about that because it was I didn't have a, a context for it. But yeah, that was the, the the context. And it turns out that there are some people have that that kind of shift, and some teachers even or teachings speak of of a, a pre-awakening stage that happens for some, where there is the the witness comes online, but it doesn't go all the way. The mechanics are interesting. Uh, Kundalini Vidya tradition talks about the energetic mechanics that are supporting that. And basically, when the Kundalini Shakti rises up the spine, gets above the throat, that's when the witness comes online. But at that point, the Kundalini is still unstable, so it comes and goes. 
But if the Kundalini rises high enough to, to reach what's called makra, which is just above the third eye, which is the white flash experience I had, not everybody has that with makra, but it's one of the symptoms, then Kundalini becomes stable and doesn't go back down again, so the witness becomes full-time, on, mm -hmm. ongoing. And that's um, more or less what happened to you. Yeah, and, and you know, just note, though, that that's not causal. It's not that because I reached Makra, then the witness stayed online. It's, it's more like the, the energetics that supports that to continue, so the physiology can support it. But I didn't discover that understanding until much, much later. And then it, the whole thing made a lot more sense. Now, there's a very small difference, uh, you know, distance between, uh, you know, Makra and, and the crown and awakening. But for some people, the, the process pauses there for the physiology to clean out more and, yeah. and, and that kind of stuff before it uh, moves on. Did that happen to you? Yeah, so yeah. That's, that's basically what happened for to me. For decades, that's, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> and that's several people I know, same thing. It's, yeah. uh, but also, you know, at that point, I was in my very early 20s, a late bloomer, so my physiology hadn't finished growing and, and establishing. So it's, you know, it was a good thing to, in some ways to pause. At the time, it wasn't uh, you know, well understood what was taking place. So then about 10 days later, I had my first, uh, what I would describe as a cognition. Now, a cognition is a kind of experience where you get a total experience, like say, I don't know, an object. So I'm experiencing this, this object here, and I see this side of the object. I might know something about how these are made or whatever like that, some details. But when you cognize an object, it's like total knowledge of the object. You can see it from all sides at simultaneously. It's an entire history, its origins, the whole thing all happens really? uh, together. So yeah. like in the case of this, you'd somehow see the metal being mined and smelted? And yeah, okay, but in this case, it's like I'm, I'm using a physical and, object, and yeah. cognitions usually aren't physical objects. It's more like more subtle stuff. Um, and so in this case, it was what's uh, Hranyagaraba, the, the um, Sanskrit name for the Cosmic, golden egg. Golden, golden yeah. egg yeah. And basically, it's the universe in seed form. So what happened basically is there's this big experience, and then it takes a long period of time. Well, it depends on the, the size of the cognition, but it takes a long period of time for that to be unpacked so that the mind can digest, you know, experience the different aspects and, and the understanding and so on like that. So, so did this cognition so, come in a flash? Did it last an hour? Well, it's like a door opened and, and then there it was. And it was been there ever since. I see. So it's been there ever since. And yeah. so it just, it's there, but... You know, it took a long time to unpack and understand. Yeah, yeah. So the the consciousness could experience it. And why is that significant? This Haranyagarbha thing. It's basically understanding of the universe, where it comes from, how it's how it functions, the the layers it's, of its uh, expression. And, okay, so know. an obvious question here would be, where does it come from? What are the layers? So that's a whole <laughs> interview in itself. You well, know, maybe so we'll, we'll leave a, it in here. It's a long process. Uh, creation. Well, I got fourteen point seven billion years. Thirteen point seven. Yeah, yeah. Creation is a very big space, and uh, there's kind of layers to the way the process. We're kind of getting ahead of ourselves here. So this was basically starting at, at, uh, at where the universe begins. So that, that kind of started to unfold during uh, teacher training. And there was various other kinds of, of experience, different kinds of things. We're talking about the mid-70s, though. It's a, it's a while back. Now, one of the things for me has been interesting, though... And you so, wouldn't so, say, I suppose, that this Haranyagarbi experience is any kind of a... Um, a must-have experience oh, in the no, course of one's no. awakening. It's just something you happen to have. Yeah, it just happened. Yeah, some, something happened to have here. It's there's a process unfolding. It's kind of, I don't know. For me, it's kind of like I feel like I'm being trained. It's like I'm, there's this process taking place where it's something that God wanted in your particular toolkit. Yeah. At first, I didn't know why I knew this stuff. You know what? what 
I'm not even awake. What's all this stuff about? You know, what, what's what's this for? But of course, that that was kind of meaningless. It was in a, in the larger picture. And so over the next, well, actually at the end of the course, uh, see by that point on the courses, Marshall would only come at the very end to make teachers. Right. Very briefly, uh, so he had a couple of meetings with us. He was really pleased with our progress. Three of us got a chance to speak with him uh, at the end, and I was lucky enough. Privately or on the mic? Uh, on the mic and up front, yeah. And so I, I talked about the breakdown of the things that unfolded. He verified the experiences and said there'd be uh, a lot more. <laughs> Worked out to be an understatement. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, anyways, I, but so, you know, I came home to Canada and, and putzed around at attempting to, to try and teach uh, meditation. And, but, uh, you know, the process continued to unfold. One of the major themes for the next couple of years was unpacking that first cognition, but also unrolling the layers. And it, for me, it's been interesting, too, because uh, for, for me, when there's been a major, like it's time to go another step deeper, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the term Panchadevata, the five forms of God. So basically, one of the forms of God would show up and point out, just kind of like do a little pointing for the attention, and then I would say, oh, there's that, and then it would, the next layer would unfold. So like, give so. us an example of a form of God that would show up. I mean, what okay. are you talking about? Well, Krishna well, or something? Well, or? Yeah, well actually, yes, on that case. Uh, the, the, I mean, they talk about the five, in the Vedic context, uh, uh, they talk about five specific gods, but those are basically just personifications of principles, you could say, for yeah. fundamental yeah. principles. And so uh, how they show up for any given individual will vary. So if you're growing up in a Native American context or something and never heard of the Vedas, you, and you were having this kind of unfoldment, maybe some Native American personification of the same exactly. principle would show exactly. up. Exactly, yeah. 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 <laughs> so for me, uh, which uh, the first one was Krishna, and, and it was, so I was in this, what I now see as a nested space where the, with the golden egg, the universe unfolding. Um, Eyes closed, meditative kind of condition, right? Uh, no, I can, I can think about it any time. It's always there. It's kind of like a part of the experience. But anyways, Krishna shows up, and, and there was kind of, for me, there was a kind of a, an odd dynamic at first, because there was kind of, well, I, you know, there was sort of thing about the personal God, you know, and I, I, I had this concept about the personal God, and, and here's this form of God showing up. Is this supposed to be my personal God? What, what is this? <laughs> but of course, there was no kind of sense of, of devotion or anything there, and, and actually, I was kind of like, Ooh, what's this? Uh, well, just to know. probe a little bit, when you say Krishna showed up, were you seeing the guy with the flute and yeah. the earrings and the whole, the whole, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, I call him a dancer. Multilal Banarsidas poster. And uh, well, kind of like that. Yeah, I mean, there's little variations in the personalization. <laughs> and it's 3D, but, and, and like, he's oh, yeah, kind of yeah. like as real as you and I. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and he's dancing, and, interacting and the with flute you in thing, some way. There isn't really a conversation going on. There's kind of like, a, but it's kind of making himself obvious. Yeah. But there, for me, there was yeah a little part I skipped over in there. I started becoming aware of what people would call astral stuff, subtle, mm -hmm. subtle entities uh, after teacher training when I came back to Canada. At first, it was kind of entertaining, but I realized pretty quickly that they were basically looking for attention. Like if I asked questions, and they were always happy to give me answers, but pretty quickly it became apparent they were just basically telling me stuff to keep my attention, and they didn't really have any knowledge to offer or whatever. And um, I realized it was kind of a mistake, so I put that aside and, and gave it no attention. Are they like lost souls or humans who have sort of gotten into some limbo state, or what are they? Well, this is a little, little solder than that, but not much. It's yeah. kind of varied. There, there are people between lifetimes, and it depends on where they are you know, in their process to, as to whether they're, they're able to take a supporting role or whether they're kind of just 
being pests. Uh, yeah, yeah, kind of rabble is one of the terms I, I use sometimes, <laughs> where they're just kind of like looking for yeah. something to do or whatever. Well, there's <laughs> people like that who are actually people too. Yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> and they're just, yeah. So having this being show up, it's kind of like, yeah, what's this, another, another weird thing. So you were thinking maybe initially Krishna was another one of these? Yeah, somebody making up some appearances. Because on those other levels, they're basically made of mind stuff, right? So they can appear however, as the part of the personalization thing I was talking about, they can appear however they wish to, and they're also your own expectations will tend to influence that. Uh, angels are a good example. I mean, you, you see depictions of angels are almost always kind of like flowing robes, these big wings and stuff like that. But if you think about it, why would a subtle being need wings, physical wings or whatever? And, Is there you know, any air there that you need to... Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's, it's nothing wrong with experiencing it that way. It's useful to be aware that, that that dynamic is going on, so you're not confused by the appearance. It's what's behind that that's more important. The feeling value, that's where you want to look, because it's the feeling value that'll tell you whether something is divine or less. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not, not worth your attention. So, uh, how do they feel? So it was kind of like, for with Krishna, it was kind of like this, you know, what is this, and you know, and, uh, but uh, a short time I kind of, okay, what's, what's this, we'll find out what this is about. And he kind of made these gestures. And then I noticed there was a feature in the sky, so to speak. Sky is kind of a funny word for it, but but there was this, this feature I hadn't noticed before, and when I put my attention on that, it kind of, the consciousness went through that into this next level. And so I stepped out of the universe space into the larger creation space, which holds, there's many universes. By that I don't mean parallel or, or you know, other dimension universes, they're quite distinct universes. Oh, more or less in the same dimension, just like bubbles in ginger ale. Well, dimension is the wrong word. Dimension is a, is a direction in space. Yeah. It's not, people use that word really poorly a lot. But yeah, it's more that space is nested. So there's infinities within infinities, and you can kind of step back through them. Uh, so it's not like you're that. saying that in, a, in the vastness of all existence or all space, there's a universe here and a universe here and a universe here, like separate little, just the way galaxies are like that. Each universe has its own space, but that space is within a still larger space. But it's not really a space in the sense that we would say space. It's a space in consciousness. So just the way in it's, the sense it, that galaxies each have their own space and, and altogether they're within a larger space. Kind of, except it's a distinct space. Yeah, if you're in, within the universe space, you're not, well, you're still, you're still nested, but it's a distinct space. You, you wouldn't necessarily be aware that there was something more. You wouldn't see the other universe over there someplace. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah, right. It's not in the same space. It's, it has its own space. All right. And so this is a whole topic of discussion. Yeah, yeah. I can go on. All, any of these things could go on for hours. But I just want to put the thing in some context here. So uh, that kind of unfolded in several layers over time. And the same thing kind of happened where another form of God showed up and pointed to look a certain way. And then there was kind of like just the attention and kind of like what was behind that would become apparent. And so over the next couple of years, I, I kind of worked up to the top uh, part of creation, to the mind of God, I guess, basically, the, the origins of creation itself, this creation. <laughs> and then it kind of stalled out there. I, I, well, actually, at a certain point, I became aware that there was other creations as well that are very, very different from ours. Well, that's actually a point to make, too. The other universes are also distinct. They have their own laws of nature. Different um, than ours? Yeah. So they might not have gravity, they might have something else? Or? Well, no, it's not that different, but there's sort of similar principles that are functioning, but the combinations are slightly different so that the expression is different. So for the skeptics in the audience, how do we know that you just don't have a vivid imagination, you're dreaming <laughs> up all this stuff? I mean, well, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine half of it, I can tell you. But, and yeah, when you say no, you got to the top of creation and knew the mind of God... Well, what, that came... What, what no, the actual... Knowing the mind of God came a little bit after that, but... 
what was the actual? The, I, I can sense Woody Allen would come in with something real clever here about the mind of God. But what what is the experience of knowing the mind of God? Well, that's further along. But uh, yeah, but there's just be, be, being aware that. Well, it's kind of like the way I would describe it is: is our creation is like a thought in the mind of God, and another creation is another thought, like that. Yeah. that's kind of how you kind I, of see that the in the Hare Krishna posters. Krishna's lying there or something, and these thought bubbles are coming out. Exactly. and each one's a creation. Yeah. Well, and sometimes though, what they're expressing is each one's a universe, which is a, yeah. within our creation. But in other ones, it's like a distinct creation, and and they're very very different. They don't have mechanics like ours at all. They could, some of them are very very simple, whereas ours is extremely complex. The simple ones are interesting because it gives you the way to experience what time is, for example, because it's, it's like an embodiment of time. Uh, that's the whole thing, is experiencing this time, just pure time. Uh, it's hard to describe, but anyway, I'm going into a whole other story. But it, it, you know, it, makes the, it makes a lot of things much clearer. Things went along, and I'm trying to think of anything else that's of any significance along in there. But eventually, you know, I, I became more involved in normal living and you know, got a job, and got married and had a couple of uh, children, boys. Mm-hmm. They're now uh, young adults, I'm very proud of. And all this stuff was uh, kind of going on in the background while yeah. you are doing all that? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of just developing along, not as dramatically, or not, not as major changes, but just kind of progressing along. And then I ended up in this situation where, well, I was working for the police, basically. I find myself working for the police. You know, I'm a kind of interdirected, philosophical kind of guy, uh, you know, police department. It's not where I expected so, to find myself. Were you a cop or are you doing some computer work? Uh, it was kind of a combination. I was a sworn officer, but developing evidence control systems and managing the evidence. And quartermaster basically issuing the sidearms and uniforms and all that stuff, uh, yeah. various kinds of roles like that. But it was just like kind of fish out of water experience. So there was this question you know, in my mind, what's going on here? And what happened over time is that I started to have these, have these brief little flashes sort of experiences things that would come up, little, like, sort of like memories, but weren't familiar. And then over time, they kind of opened up, and I started to become aware that I was remembering prior lifetimes. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that it was interesting, like the, the easiest way to remember a, an older memory like that is strong memories, which basically usually means challenging in some way, <laughs> difficult memories. And so that, that can be the, like a, the doorway in. It's, it's not an easy process to, to, because you have to be comfortable enough to be willing to see that, whatever, and, and then... So, and for then instance, if you had been in Auschwitz or something, you have a strong memory, and you have to be comfortable enough to be able to relive that to some extent. Yeah, and, be will, and, and sort of, uh, I, I guess, have the, have the platform to be willing to, to know how to purify that, too, right. have, the, have the, the, tech, the tools to, to be able to clear that. Otherwise, you're just basically bringing that old trauma back into your life now. Yeah, yourself. yeah. So you don't you don't really want to go there. But anyways, for me, it was it was uh, over a period of time, a couple of years. It gradually unfolded, and it became clear that the circumstances why I was working for the police, and indeed why this you know marriage and and so on like that, a lot of details about my life were a direct spinoff of my, my actually my previous one. Well, in that case, I was born into a military family in India and an arranged marriage. But the woman that I was supposed to marry was in love with somebody else. And I had already had a prior lifetime in an ashram. And it, it was, the military was not comfortable. And so I made the decision to withdraw into an ashram again and not pursue the family dharma or whatever and, or, or marry this woman and so she could marry this other guy instead. And that decision was very, very difficult for me. And it left this residual. And so what happened in this lifetime was that I unfolded the other decision. Yeah. I did marry her. 
I did have that in the paramilitary career. And yeah, yeah. And then when that was resolved, then that whole thing wound down and, and it was you know, on to another chapter. So that was kind of a little, a little chapter in there. And that's kind of gradually unfolded over time more and more in different ways. I haven't, I don't put a lot of attention on it. It's the past. But in the context, it, it puts the life in a larger context. So it's interesting from that, uh, from that point of view. So not a big thing to emphasize or anything, but it's context. Oh, and just, you know, uh, there is that question again about, you know, imagination and, and all that. But uh, what for me happened at a certain point, just gradually over time, there'd be little details that would come up. Uh, like three lifetimes ago, I, I wrote a book and I looked it up and there's a real book. Yeah. You claim royalties. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think it's selling anymore. It's, a, it's an old rare book thing now. What but, was it about? But, uh, philosophy. <laughs> Cool. As an Indian yeah. or a Westerner? No, a Westerner, British, and I spent a lot of time going back and forth to uh, Paris and studying with the philosophers there, too. In that lifetime? Yeah, in that yeah. lifetime, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Anybody we would have heard of? I don't remember enough. To, 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 I haven't explored it enough. That was just kind of the general context of it, and I learned a few things from that, too. So it's, it's, it's interesting. But it's, it's not something I think about much now. It's interesting, actually, now there's sort of like, there's, over time, there's been this whole series of different ways of experiencing time. So yeah. it's kind of a... So you weren't like uh, seeking out memories of past lives or anything. These were just kind of coming to you. But there was that element of me trying to understand my Curiosity. current life. Like what, what's going on with this current life? Why yeah. am I in this Why situation? This, yeah. yeah. And that kind of helped me be willing to look and to encourage that to come out. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it's, not, it's certainly not a necessary thing on the path. Some people never, you know, go into that. Some people are very awake, don't, never bother going there. Uh, it's the past. Yeah. Who needs it? But... The lesser you know, developed state. But if you have more rich karma, then, then sometimes it can be interesting to, yeah. uh, to explore. So gradually, you know, I, more and more my life was more householder focused and, uh, you know, supporting the family and, and uh, you know, home renovations and all that the usual kinds of, kinds of busyness with uh, a young family. I went through a career change and that's when I shifted more into technology. So, you know, fast forward a bunch of years and then... Uh, my marriage broke up at the time, and I left a business I had helped found, and so a bunch of things, outer things, shifted. And I started reconnecting with some old friends, and ended up just like people would just show, I go to, I went to a, this whole spiritual thing became more lively again. And so the cycle came around again. Reconnected with some old friends, went to a few satsangs and met some other one, you know, re-met other ones, and, and so on. And then kind of along in that process, I uh, started hearing about Lauren and Lucia. They were just teaching locally in, in Alberta at that time, in the Canadian prairies. And then at a certain point in, in there in 07, they started uh, making their satsangs available by Skype. And so I started listening, and then we started doing this Skype daisy chain thing to connect people all over the place. It was really uh, fragile and <laughs> flaky. It would crash, and we'd have to reconnect to everybody all the time, and that, and, and it would be noisy, and, and uh, yeah, all, you know, half the time you couldn't hear him. But it, as he said, it didn't matter. But after a couple of calls there, there was a, just sitting, listening, like I talked about at the very beginning, about just listening from silence, and he used the word surrender for the first time that I, I noticed, and I just heard the word differently. I don't know how to describe it exactly, but just kind of like something clicked, something let go, and it's kind of like I fell down this transparent tube or funnel and flick. something very distinctively clicked, shifted, plopped, whatever you want to call it. This is just over Skype. Yeah, 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 just sitting listening. 
So I wasn't, I wasn't sure what this was, but it was, it was interesting because for a couple of days I couldn't figure out how to meditate because the person that meditated was not there anymore. It's like, you know, it's like, where is this person? And it's like the sense of it way, way off, like miles away. It was just like really weird. It's like, how do I, how do I meditate? From yeah. a distance, the house is seen reverberating. Yeah, yeah. That line? Well, yeah. But no, I kind of integrated better after a short time and then, and then I was able to kind of exist with the person better. And, and I guess it was about, it was, this was on a Wednesday night and I got, in the Friday morning I woke up and I just knew it was just it was just clear what this was that I had shifted that, that there had been that shift from so that so the con- the consciousness that had been awake there as the witness all this all these decades woke up to itself and that's the key change it's not just it waking up but it has to wake up to itself in there and then consciousness is awake to itself through this through this apparent form so the shift finally took place and then things moved quickly again through that uh, cycle I went on uh, my first retreat with uh, Lauren Lucia that summer, and Lauren verified it and everything, and yeah, it was just really a, a rich period, a lot of bliss. And what's interesting, too, about the bliss is it's not like, you know, your idea that it's like, okay, you, you know, you're going to be kind of happy at some point in there or whatever, but when the bliss kicks in, it can come on really strong sometimes. It kinda, sometimes it kind of like just opens and sometimes it's just like, bam. But it's not once. It's like there's layers of it. it. It gets bigger. There's a section in the Upanishads where it talks about 100 times the bliss of whatever is, is this, and then 100 times the bliss of that. And it's kind of like you step up through that over time. And it's like this blasting bliss. Tom Trainer talked about an example. Actually, it is funny, too, because a couple of people have, have commented to me that you, you better hope it doesn't happen in public. Because you're just kind of rendered this, you know, bawling and laughing out loud because the, the happiness is just so intense. One of them for me was I was driving down the road in my truck and all of a sudden just blam. And, you know, I was bawling and, and laughing out loud. And, and the sun comes out blurring down on, my, on the truck, yeah. shining down on my truck. And I have the radio going and, and Green Day, I'm so effing happy I could cry. It comes on the radio and it's like, whoa. It was, yeah, but fortunately, my body just kind of continued to drive the truck properly. <laughs> Nothing happened. But uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty. So it's kind of like there's this graded process of, of the bliss um, kicking up in there. Uh, Why do you feel that uh, that but, happens after a shift like that? Account? Well, it's, it's not the shift itself. For me, one of the things I talk about is this distinction between the process of Atman and consciousness and the process of sattva. The pure, purity or clarity. They're kind of like these two parallel processes, the Shiva and, and the Shakti side, the male and female parts of the equation. And it's together that you get the, the fullness. Um, non-dual circles tend to really emphasize the Shiva side, mm-hmm. the consciousness side, and uh, some of the, the uh, energy healers and, and uh, ascension teachings and stuff emphasize the, the Asattva side. But it's really what you want is both together. And the bliss, we, we have what they call in the Vedas, koshas, which basically means sheaths. So our, our bodies are composed of a series of layers. And we have our physical, the food body, literally, and then the, the prana body, the energy body behind that, and then the mental body behind that, and then the intellect body, which is where we also experience fine feelings and intuition and such like that. And then behind that is the bliss body. And so it's basically there all the time. It's just that the noise and unsettledness and fog and whatever in the mind and emotions is kind of like a clouds. Yeah. It's a fog, dust. Maharishi used the example of the elephant stirring up the uh-huh. dust. Russian dolls is a good but, metaphor for this. You know, with yeah. the doll within the doll within the doll. Yeah. yeah. The, the physical body is the little one in the, in the middle. Uh. 
Yeah, so basically once the, there's enough clarity, then, then the bliss will come online. And it'll, like I mentioned, as, as there's more and more clarity, it, it steps up. Yeah, and when you're experiencing surges of it, like you described, yeah. probably it just means that certain channels are, are clearing, yeah. and each time a channel of some sort clears, then there's a new surge. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I would make it quite that simplistic, but when another layer of fog is, is clear, yet, yeah. then it, yeah, it can come up another level. And there might be uh, some physiological correlate to that. Yeah, and the other part of it that's really interesting is how quickly we, we get used to it. There's this blasting thing, and in a couple of hours it's normal. So this whole new level of happiness, and it's normal. But it can still take time to integrate. I remember one time a little, in the next year after that, I was, they sent me home from work because I was sick. Not because you were laughing uncontrollably. No, because yeah. I was quite <laughs> physically sick, and I didn't realize it. And I was kind of like, I got home, and I'm sitting down, and I was like, am I sick? And it's like, I realized, you know, like my nose is pouring, and it's like, yeah, you know, nasty earache and the whole thing. I hadn't even really noticed. It was just kind of like this background. Because you're yeah. feeling so darn blissful. Yeah. So, of course, things integrated better after that. It took a little time, but, you know, <laughs> it was a little more integrated. So, yeah, I can pay attention to what the body is doing, and, and yeah, if it needs some attention. It <laughs> yeah. They say Ramana Maharshi, you know, when he had cancer and he was screaming in pain and people say, oh, Ramana, we're so sorry you're suffering like that. And he's like, are you kidding? I'm, I'm not <laughs> suffering. I'm in this blissful state. This is, you're, you're not seeing, you know, but a bit of what my reality is here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's just the, the surface part of it. Yeah, it's, and that's a useful point, too, because just because suffering ends doesn't mean the pain ends. Right. And doesn't mean that emotions end. I mean, I certainly find emotions now far bigger and richer than, than they used to be. Much fuller of the whole spectrum. Less constricted. Yeah. They yeah. have a larger then, context in which to play. Yeah, and for the most part, they come up, their experience, and then they, they, they subside, they resolve. There's no resistance to the experience normally. Not perfect or anything, but... <laughs> But that kind of leads me into the, the sort of second thing. So about, about two months after the, the shift, then the GC phase, the God consciousness. And that's part of actually the, the sattva side of the equation. Interesting. It's, so it's, it's, just to interject. So okay. you, know, you went through all this stuff that you've described, and there were these cognitions of Krishna and the mind of God and all that stuff. And that was all prior to actual self-realization, which is sometimes referred to as cosmic consciousness, yeah. which is just basically the full awakening of consciousness to itself in the context of a living a life, you know, waking, yeah. waking, dreaming, sleeping. So all that, all that was leading up to that cosmic consciousness stage, which is actually quite intermediary in the, in the scheme of things, as you're going to continue to describe. Yeah, it, it's, very, it's, a, it's a key shift, though. It's a yeah. very key shift. It, it's the foundation of everything that happens afterwards. And it's something that's felt throughout creation. It's like it's this key shift of mm -hmm. self-realization. It's very important. Fundamental, foundational. Yes, yeah, a fundamental. But, but yes, it, it, it's chicken feed. It's, it's like every time you have a major shift, it's like everything before was kindergarten. Well, you're, you're back in kindergarten, and everything before was pre-kindergarten. Right. It's, it's a complete, uh, you kind of start, start over in certain ways. So uh, God consciousness is, is, in the TM context, is taught as there's the cosmic consciousness and God consciousness and unity. But if there isn't a lot of the sattva development, the, the GC can be very purity. Yeah, uh, there can be very little. Yeah, there can be very little awareness of that. And in fact, some traditions, even poo-poo it, talk about it as delusional or a mistake. But if if the self-realization is there then it's actually you, you have the platform where that can unfold. What I described before is sometimes thought of as, as subtle perception and GC types. But the, in this context, it was experiences. It wasn't the value of the consciousness itself, of the state itself. Because 
with God consciousness, what happens? There's this process I talked about before about the Kundalini rising to the crown and awakening. Then there's a descent. Shakti has risen, joined Shiva, then the two descend together. When they get to the heart is the GC phase. And if there is enough clarity, then there's this incredible blossoming at the heart. There's just like the love just blasting out. And it was kind of funny, at the time I was single and there was no object. I'm not particularly devotional, so there wasn't. I don't have like a... a, a, a Devata, yeah. And, and there wasn't a... My, my guru, yeah, my guru relationship wasn't devotional like that. But for me, it was the what they call the upaguru, which is basically the mate. Uh, that's the sort of form that's more comfortable to me. But there wasn't a mate. And so essentially, one of my friends, who I highly respected, became kind of a, an object for a short while. Man, to, woman? Woman as a, an object for the love to flow through. So did you have it, an actual relationship a, with her, or is it more like just, a, a, just an just idolization a, or a, a yeah, deep yeah. appreciation? Yeah, thing. deep appreciation, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so we went through this kind of curious thing as What did she make friends. of it? I don't know, I won't speak for her. So you're saying it wasn't even romantic, it was more like just this pure devotional kind of thing? Yeah, just uh, I needed a vehicle for the love to go through. It was yeah, just, no, like, totally just like kind of everywhere, and I needed yeah. somewhere for it to go. Uh-huh. And so it just happened to be we were spending some time together, because what we were finding, there's a thing I call resonance. It's, essentially um, darshan, but people, there are individuals that you resonate with more than others. And as the, the awakening gets higher and higher, then more and more people will resonate with you. But, uh, you know, with the basic awakening, there's a slightly smaller range. Anyways, we were quite resonant, so spending time together was like amplifying the silence just by just having tea together or whatever. And so we were spending a little extra time together right at that point, and it just happened to be that it so it was an interesting episode. Um, so there was this huge flowing of love and a much deeper sense. Because before that, there was perception of the divine, but not the divine, the real divine, the, 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 the love and the, the oomph. That's so you, you mentioned, you, you, just, you know, you termed it God consciousness. The question, to paraphrase Tina Turner, was what's God got to do with it? You know, I mean, because you, you, you found a, a friend, a human friend, that you were channeling your devotion to, right, but, but that was, why that was would we the, uh, attach the word God to this state? That's the expression, because it's what I'm expressing is the divine. It's not that she was, well, she was kind of my God or whatever, in a, in a sense, in a broad kind of sense. Goddess, yeah, in a sense of that process. To, would it be uh, fair to say that you were appreciating but it was, the, it was the, as a, an expression love, of God, so you're de- feeling devotion to well, God in the form of this woman? Yeah, like namaste, but it's, it's a, that love that's bursting forth is the flow of the divine itself. Uh, it's that expression of the divine, and so it has that flavor of, you know, what, you, know you might not like the God word, whatever, like oh, that. I love the God word, I'm yeah, just trying yeah, to understand yeah, it, how you're yeah, using it. Yeah, but it's just that when, when it's actual expression, like before I, I, I mentioned, you know, I'm, I met Krishna and there's, he's doing his thing, but it was kind of like, you know, who is this guy, you know, what's this about, you know, not a God, you know, devotional relationship going on there. So it's a, it's, it was a very different thing. So, so recognition that there was the divine, but it was on the level of experience, not on the level of a much deeper value of the divine. Mm-hmm. Understanding how the divine moves and flows through everything and so on. So a much deeper value of what had been there before unfolded. And then there was a, a, another shift happened about two months after that. It kind of came in, in stages. It was, it, just, it was kind of interesting coincidence. A friend of mine was watching a, a DVD of Ajashanti and Locke Kelly talking called Journey After Awakening. And it's a basically on this phase between initial awakening and, and uh, unity. And they said, you know, they're, they're describing your experience. You should come over here. And, and so I watched it. And there was this one other thing to happen. 
uh, they call it the barbecue. I did. Locke called it that. Locke called it that, and uh -huh. yeah, in the discussion. And basically, what happens is is the 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 scent reaches the gut. A very very long time ago, in the cycles of time. Basically, consciousness goes through these rising and falling cycles through time. So there's higher consciousness, people are more like awake. Yoga. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so there's higher consciousness, people are more awake, happier times, and then we go into darker times, and then we cycle back up again. Right. It's just like the seasons. During the last descent, there was a place where there was a somewhat precipitous drop, and people lost their connection with the divine fairly suddenly. And so it created this kind of like grip grasping and what we grasped at was the individuality what was still there the the sense that i am here and so it's kind of this core grip in the gut that is the core identity Ajashanti actually talks about this too head heart gut he describes in in some of his material so that's had not conscious until that point usually and so it became conscious it released quite quickly fortunately and it was but it was interesting for me I might not have even noticed it, except for the fact that I knew about this, the barbecue step, because it was just, but it was just kind of like this anomalous experience where there's a really strong, not exactly fear, but like a, a, a kind of thing right out of nowhere and processed away. And then what I realized was there was no longer a David there anymore. For a couple of weeks in there, I, I took to dropping personal pronouns altogether. <laughs> I, I, I very to, annoying to talk with. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> One of those annoying phases. Yeah, and, and so I referred to the, the, the body-mind as the unit. Yeah, it was kind of an odd stage, but it was fairly short. And then I went on another retreat with uh, Lauren Lucia. And then one evening, I was lying in bed. You know, it was dark in the room. Very bit of light leaking in, you know. Was, uh, I could still see there was a room there. But at that point, I realized it, it was all gone. What all, was all, all gone? All the Davidness? All, well, not just the Davidness, but everything. All uh -huh. that history of cognitions and experiences and, and the awakening and, and all that stuff was gone, just emptied out. And so I'm kind of looking around this very dark room. It's like, the room's still here. Like, the whole, all creation, the whole thing is gone, right? But it's like, the room's still here. What's, what's with this? So basically what happened was all the previous stuff collapsed. The shift took place, and then I was able to bring it back again into that new context. So there's kind of like those three stages of self-realization, unity, and, and Brahman, we'll get to in a bit. And then there's the progression of refinement, the sattva, the, the clarity taking place with the heart and the refinement and so on. Parallel to that, and whereas this first stage, as I mentioned, they begin with a realization. There's a shift in being, and then everything kind of develops from that. With the other ones, it's a progression to a climax. And every time we have a, a shift in our stage of consciousness, it puts all that refinement, the sattva stuff, in a new context. So before there was, there was uh, you know, God consciousness, now there's what takes place after that is bringing that stuff back into unity, and so you get refined unity. So at first, though, there, there's just this, this shift, and there was no longer a division between inside and outside. It was just like a continuum and I contained everything. I was the container of the world, and the world was no longer separate. Now this changes the witness dynamic, though. It's no longer that you're a detached witness because the world is you also. And so observing is still taking place, but it's no longer separate from the contents. It's, it's kind of, essentially the observer and observed collapse together, leaving only observing the process of experience, the, the devata value, the divine value. So that kind of process took place. And, and unity is kind of different, too, in that it has a series of stages. Because you're, you're basically unifying through experiencing. What you experience, you become. And so 
you know, you go through this process of experiencing, bringing back the old refined perception stuff in this new context and, you know, just old memories and, you know, what's out here and all this stuff. And as it's experienced, it's, it's integrated into this one wholeness progressively. And it goes progressively deeper over time. And this isn't like a concept of oneness or a feeling of oneness or, or anything like that. This is in on the level in consciousness itself. So, for example, if I, on the level of senses, if I touch you, I feel you with my, my hand, but I also am you ex experiencing being touched simultaneously. They're both happening But you don't time. feel the sensation on my shoulder the way I feel the, the sensation on yes. my shoulder. You do? Yes. Yeah. So not, not now, but at the time. When I was in that stage. I when when I was in that stage. Yeah. You're no longer yeah. in that stage. Yeah, and now, now I don't pay attention to that stuff because right. it's just it's too much information. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just saying, it's like, because it's happening on the level of consciousness, it's inclusive of everything. And so it's inclusive of all your levels of experience. And, you know, you put your attention on a tree or, or a dog, and you experience what that being is experiencing. But you experience it from where you are, not from where they are. That's because it's your consciousness that's doing the experiencing. Huh. So this isn't astral traveling or empath stuff. So if they're Again, suffering, do you experience to... suffering? Yes, but it's not your suffering you're experiencing huh. in the sense of, well... Like you wouldn't want to get a job at Red Lobster throwing lobsters into the boiling water or something because you'd be experiencing what the lobsters are experiencing? Yeah, but that's, that's empathic stuff. But that's uh. if you're engaging that. Because there, the, there is always the choice. Like the, with the refined perception, you know, you can look at the tree or you can look at the tree and see the energy flowing and the, and the, and the dynamics going on with the tree or in unity experience what it is to be a tree. That's how you're using your attention. Uh. But if, you can, if you're, you're being a householder living in the world doing things, there's a tree. It's fine. You don't need to look at every single tree and, and see what it's doing. Right. Too much information. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. You still have a life to live here in your physical body and, and in your physical life yeah. and responsibilities and all that. But anyways... But not the, having all those cognitions of every tree and so on doesn't deprive you of the essential value that has somehow dawned in your right. experience. Right. Yeah. So And you can filter the information too. So you can experience that they are suffering but not experience their suffering or not make it your suffering. Because there's that distinction, too, again, between suffering and pain. I mean, you cut yourself, there's pain, but how you respond to that makes a difference of whether there's suffering with it. Right. Like when you make a drama about, oh, this should, never should have happened, I, I shouldn't have done that, that was really stupid of me, yeah. da, 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 you know, get into a big drama about it. Or you just experience the pain itself. Yeah. And one of the things about, interesting about pain, and that's physical and emotional pain, not both, is that when you acknowledge it, it will back way off. It's, it's when you resist pain, it's trying to get the signal to you that something's wrong. And One thing I wonder about when I hear that is that it sort of seems like it depends upon the degree of pain. To be crucified, for instance, and not suffer during the process would, it seems to me, require a very profoundly established yes. state of enlightenment. Certainly the pain's going to be there, but whereas to stub your toe and not suffer would re require a much lesser degree of enlightenment. Yeah. Or attachment, really. And that's actually the important distinction in there, because that's more related to the sattva side again. Because people can wake up and still be very attached to certain kinds of things. Now, there is this kind of process, I kind of jokingly refer to it as the three amigos there before, uh, amigos. Because there's like the, with awakening, there's the loss of the concept of a me an end of the sense of a me that's this, an individual separate from other, other things like that. And then with the heart, there's a loss of the emotional drivers of that. So after the GC phase, actually it gets much easier to wind down some of the, the old 
concepts and mind things and stuff like that. And then with unity, it's the loss of that core I sense, which is the origin of that in the first place. So once the unity is established, then that's very clear. So someone who's somewhere in the middle there is, is quite likely going to be still be having some dynamics about, they, they blew the middle out, but there's still old habits of, of being a certain way about stuff or you know, resisting certain kinds of experiences or, or whatever. There's still, some of that old dynamic is still there able to kind of revive bits and pieces until that kind of settles out, and, you know, unpacking sometimes it's called. So the, the shift itself is, is key, but there's a process that happens after that where it has to be unloaded. I mean, Adyashanti talks about having a honeymoon after the shift and then followed by the mind trying to come back and, and reassert itself as being quite common. And, you know, and we're, the thing about the West, too, is we have a real mind-dominated culture, so that's more likely to happen. Uh, there's less, there tends to be a little less of that uh, sattva side, uh, clarity side of the equation, the heart side, more mind, less heart kind of thing in the West. I mean, there's certainly all kinds of variations in that. But yeah, it's, it's more of a, it's, a, it's a, a more prominent in the West, some of that stuff. So the uh, unity process unfolded over a number of years. I, I'm losing track of all the details now, but, but a gradual, progressive, bigger and bigger completeness until it reached a point where a consciousness became aware of itself at a really global level. So there is consciousness aware of itself, Atman, self-aware Atman, uh, aware of itself both globally and at every point within itself. And essentially, you and I are different points within itself points of observation within that one wholeness. Non-separate, like little waves on the ocean. I have a graphic of that on my blog. <laughs> and in this global awareness. And once consciousness reached that point where it knows itself fully, there's an interesting thing that can take place. It has always been consciousness aware of itself. But when it knows itself fully, it, it can stop looking in and look beyond itself. Which is kind of interesting, because when you talk to somebody who's you know, even in unity, it's kind of like, what are you talking about? Because consciousness is infinite, it's eternal, it, its existence is... So how uh, can anything be beyond it? Yeah, how can anything be beyond it? How can, how can there be a, an, an origin or something? Beyond like that? it implies but, there's something outside of it. Yeah, yeah. And what happens is it turns and it sees the origins of itself. Consciousness the beginning. has origins? Yeah. So consciousness has a beginning in Brahman. In a sense. It's kind of a... The, the dynamics get quite different then, but... And that, that in, leads in some, not in some timeline sort of sense. Yeah, like no, it way back then. But yeah, yeah, in a, no, this, you know, is, kind this of is beyond time. Primordial now. Yeah. Uh, so essentially, there's these two qualities. You could say, almost say that there's this alertness yeah. and this liveliness. Uh -huh. And the aliveness stirs alertness, and it becomes conscious. And then consciousness, the aliveness stirs consciousness to flow, and it flows and curves back on itself, and then becomes self-aware. And when it becomes self-aware, it becomes aware of its own existence. And was existence becomes consciousness. And existence becomes, becomes conscious intelligence. Intelligence yeah, assumes the role eight. of creative intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, So that's the dynamic in consciousness. But there's that piece before it. So there's that dynamic. The consciousness becomes aware. It has its origins, and then it depends. There's the kind of two things that happen in there. This is when the the that's the other side of the equation with the, with sattva side. It reaches a point where you have this choice of of uniting with God, sort of the ultimate stage of unity is uniting with the divine, or to re retain that lesha vidya, remains of ignorance, to keep a slight difference, a distance, so that you can still be devoted to God. Right. Yeah. And so there's that choice that takes place where you, 
you can unite or whatever. Most people I know have done the uniting thing that have made this step. And so you become one with God, you then go beyond. Uh, as a result of that, you, you step beyond Atman, you transcend Atman into Brahman. They call that the Great Awakening in, in um, the Vedic literature. It's a very big change. Again, the, the entire enlightenment that had been there before, gone. You know, from, from the examples I know, it looks like a, there's typically a two-stage process. Firstly, there's this, this unless it's extremely clear, uh, firstly, there's this stepping out of, of unity into Brahman. So you're, what you're conscious of is what you're leaving behind, what you lose, basically. And that can be challenging for some people. Uh, it can certainly be a surprise, unexpected, in, in the way it, because it's, it's complete, it's thorough. All that, you know, layers of unity and all that intimacy and, and the, the relationship with the divine and all that stuff, gone. Now you've thrown the word Brahman a few, in yeah. here a few okay. times. I think you've kind of defined it, but you better define it a little bit more because people aren't going to necessarily be... Okay, well, the, if you're familiar with some of those things, like this, the, the Mahavakyas from the Upanishads, I am that, thou art that, all this is that, that alone is. I mean, that's more a reference to the unity process. But essentially that is Brahman. And it's, defining Brahman is an interesting one because it's not consciousness, but it's not non-consciousness. It's not existence, it's not non-existence. Because those are, those are actually dualities. And it, it, it's not obvious, even in unity, that the fact that you exist and you're conscious is a duality. But it actually is a very subtle duality. And Brahman is beyond that too. And the Brahma Sutra calls it the aggregate. It's like this, this coming together into this totality, to this wholeness that's greater than all of it. And it's interesting because then the whole perspective, see, up until then there's been this whole perspective of this unfolding divine and the structure of creation and all, and all that going on, and now it's, it's gone, there's nothing. Not a nothing in terms of emptiness, but a nothing in terms of nada. That never happened. Creation never happened. Right. Never will happen. You know uh, that kind of stuff. So it's like, and here I had been this guy, you know, championing that that your understanding of, of this creation is an illusion, or you know, the world is Maya, an illusion, or something like that, uh, is not a, a, a complete understanding. And actually, that's interesting. That's a worthwhile point to make. This from Shankara. Maya does not actually mean illusion. It means it comes from the root to build. It's a reference to creation. As Shankar points out, when tamas guna, the inertia, is dominant in the physiology, in our experience, we experience the world as real, solid. When that is transformed through rajas or fire transformation, we come to see maya as illusory. The world is illusion. And then when sattva becomes dominant, the transformation starts to complete, then we see lila, the divine play. The world becomes seen as, the, as a play of the divine. So, in other words, the world as illusion is a stage of sattva development. It's not a marker for stage of consciousness. It's a stage towards sattva development. Yeah, and so some people will go into self-realization with lots of sattva already, so they won't have a world as illusion stage. Because yeah. they, they did that already beforehand or whatever. However, that showed up for them. So it's part of that sattva process. And, and then, but even, you know, there's at the bottom of my, my website is a little saying from the, from the Isha Upanishad the face of truth is hidden by a covering of uh, gold. And of course, from the, the uh, Krishna to Arjuna and the Gita, uh, be without the three gunas. So even sattva itself, you want to go beyond. But that becomes the platform for a lot of development. So sattva so. Is, the color, is the covering of gold. 
or purity, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. which yeah. itself has an obscuring value to some extent, yeah, although not, still, nothing yeah. much by comparison with Thomas. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, but it's still a quality of expression. It's not the source itself. Yeah, for me, the so there's that first stage into into Brahman where it's more you're more aware of what you've lost, and then there's this second stage where you start to become aware of what Brahman itself is. But it's like the Tao that can be described as not the Tao kind of thing. It's it's a really challenging to describe in any way because you can kind of like, well, it's not consciousness, but it's not not consciousness. It's not you know you can do all these things where it's not this, it's not that, and you get those phrases. What is the 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 one that Shankar said that the Brahman? The world is an illusion. Brahman alone is real. The world is Brahman. Yeah, that yeah, thing. exactly. Because that that's and those all are all three true simultaneously right. and it's this, mer it's this complete merger of paradoxes into true non-duality because it's you know a lot of people talk about self-realization as being non-duality and they, they use those kind of terms but if there's a separate illusory world that's not even if the world's an illusion that's not that's duality that's, <laughs> right. that's dvaita you got uh, some non-duality over here but there's all this other stuff exactly, that's exactly. so that's not non-duality right. non-duality unfolds with unity that comes a little later so the second stage is, is when you become aware of what actually is here. And, and it really depends on the, on the person. For me, the process has been quite a bit slower. I think um, probably because I had that long witnessing, those earlier stages came quite quickly. And then the process has gradually started to slow down because I, I haven't, I've used up my uh, credits, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, it, but it's just anyways, there's, there's more, it's a much, yeah, it's kind of like, it's funny, it's, I can say abstract, but it's sort of like there's this stage in unity where the world becomes more real than it ever was before because it is the self. Yeah. And then the self is eternal. And it, it's sort of it's like the world takes on this concreteness and solidity because it's absolute. Yeah. It has an appearance, a surface appearance, which is changing. But behind that is, or, or then there's the you know, subtler value where you're seeing the flow and behind everything, the flow of consciousness that's giving rise to all this, all this appearance. But then in the Brahman perspective, this isn't happening. Essentially, it's like the, the divine had this brief thought musing, and it's like, and that's led to, you know, these gazillions, this huge, vast creation with a gazillion beings in each of a whole bunch of universes and, and all this massive laws of nature and this whole process and that kind of stuff. But it's just like this kind of thought. It never actually happens or whatever. A little brain fart. Yeah, yeah, kind of like that. And it's kind of interesting, too, because when you explore some of these, you know, the subtle dynamics of all this, it's like, you know, in the Yoga Vashish, there's that story of the crow, the Bushunda. Kaka Bushunda. Yeah, like that. yeah. Uh, and he has figured out a, li a way to live through the dissolution of, of uh, the universe or the right. creation or something. And he's lived through 10 cycles. And in those 10 cycles, Vashishta, the sage Vashishta had come to visit him seven or eight times or something, but not every time. So it's kind of like these little slight variations, and it's repeating itself. So, you know, before for me, there was that sense of Leela, the purpose of creation was for the self to know itself. But once it's complete, it's done. Why would you do it again? Even if there's slight variations, you're not going to, you know. But the Brahman answers that question. It doesn't in the first place, so it didn't need to happen. <laughs> there's a couple of questions here. Um, okay. One is... You know, this, a thought that's been kind of percolating as you've been speaking, and that is, who set this whole game up? They didn't, but let's say from the perspective that they did. Oh, from unity, yeah. From I the say, perspective okay. that there is a creation, and it has all these laws that govern it, who set that whole thing in motion? 
Or can't the question well, be answered? Well, you can say that. Well, you can say the divine, God. Why? You want then to the say. next question is why. Well, if you look at silence, with nothing in it, well, what's the point? There's, there's not. Well, there's, yeah, you, but there's nothing you can learn from that, right? right. You, can, you can't learn about self unless you experience yourself. Mm -hmm. And so, if you express the, the, all these qualities of intelligence within within it, then there's that opportunity for consciousness to discover itself in all these little details. So consciousness, I mentioned earlier, how consciousness is aware of itself globally, but then it goes into, at each point, to become aware of a different perspective. Like you're experiencing me from a certain perspective, I'm experiencing you from a certain perspective, and there's various flavors and qualities that are distinct between the two of us. So, it's, so the whole it's creation a to, is a way for God to know himself as a living reality as opposed to a flat, unmanifest, un-nothingness. Yeah, yeah. No, but it's not even like there's, there's no need for God to know itself that way. But, but there's this quality of, because God already knows everything. It's already all there. So there's this quality of consciousness that arises from the divine then the consciousness wants to know itself. Mm -hmm. and, and then you get, there's a whole, whole series of uh, tiers to the process, and so each layer wants to unfold the next layer, and, mm -hmm. and then there's this kind of going out and going out into the, to the creation, and then getting lost in it, and then finding your way back again. Right. It's kind of that whole story that, that various. And as you know, you know, some people regard creation as meaningless, mechanistic, cold, random, accidental, all kinds of words like that. Yeah. Um, you and I, I don't think, see it that way, and, and nor would <laughs> no. most of the people watching this. That it seems to be pregnant with purpose of some sort, an oh, yes. evolutionary oh, yes. purpose. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and there's life everywhere. Yes. That's been aware to me for a very long time. I mean, you're never alone. It's, Everywhere it's would like, even mean places that would be considered entirely inhospitable to life, such as the center of the sun. I mean, that is life as much as right, our right. liver. Right, but there's <laughs> life, yeah, but it's not, this is, there's life that exists not just in a physical sense, no, but, but, yeah, but, you know, on those levels of energy and mind and that kind of stuff, yeah. there, there are beings that exist and express through whatever, yeah. whatever they have available and, and they're, they're having their own process of experiencing and, and, and doing whatever they, their, their own dharma or whatever purpose that they have. And also wherever yeah. you look, there's intelligence in, yeah. in abundance. I mean, go out somewhere in intergalactic space and look at a cubic centimeter of what apparently is nothing and there are laws of nature functioning there which evidence yeah. incredible yeah. intelligence. Well, yeah. just consider ourselves. I mean, we exist as these complex life forms on a planet, you know, and, and you think about just, just the odds of that from the known physical laws. Yeah. Entropy is a very powerful force. How the planet managed to even be formed in the first place that didn't just fall apart and, yeah. and disintegrate, you know, and there we can talk about gravity and various things that happened, but then it stabilizes after. But how would life and intelligent life form on that just from random sure. mechanical... I forget who it was, yeah, Tilly de Chardin or somebody who said yeah. the universe isn't winding down, it's winding up. Yeah, you know, yeah. there's this continual it's, it's, emergence of yeah. oh, orderliness out of... It doesn't of, make any sense. Right. I mean, uh, yeah, there is this, ooh, ooh, are you going to talk about creationism or, or whatever, some of the, what is the term they use for the... Intelligent design or something. Yeah, intelligent design, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, there's an obvious um, counterbalance to entropy. Yeah. 
Otherwise, everything yeah. would have just ground to dust exactly. by now. Exactly. That, that force of order has to be stronger than entropy right. to, for the system to continue. And actually, that's what dharma means. It's that which sustains the, the, the purpose or the sense of, it's often you know, translated as purpose, but in a deeper sense, dharma is that which keeps things going yeah. so that it can unfold. Yeah. Okay. Now, a minute ago, you said something about how when you've gone through this whole process and come to its conclusion, why would you want to do it again? Creation, yeah. Creation. And that, to me, sounded like it was expressed from a somewhat individual perspective, because from the universal perspective, it would seem that it's an eternal cycle which would never sort of reach a point of never wanting to be done again. There's this kind of con right. continual... Yeah, what I, was, what I was expressing there was my experience at the time had been that the purpose of creation is for the self to know itself and all these all yeah. these different you know but then when it becomes apparent that it keeps cycling uh -huh. and it repeats itself then the question comes up well why would it do that and well then it, that's resolved with brahman and when you see that it didn't do it in the first place yeah so it never did it in the first place <laughs> but from the perspective that it has done it yes. then it keeps doing it yeah it appears to keep going and, and then it, it and knows it, itself in the form and in, in this form this form has become a conduit or a, or an instrument through which it can know itself but not necessarily in this petunia and <laughs> or in that frog or whatever yeah, yeah so it seems that all forms continue to evolve and serve as vehicles for the souls which embody them to progress through stage upon stage of greater and greater sophistication in the course of greater and greater self-discovery. Yeah, there's interesting mechanics. Sense? Yeah, there is an interesting mechanics to that too, because there is the, what's called the Veda itself, you know, that we think of Vedas as, as being books, but the books are actually written versions of descriptions of what might be called blueprints or core, core templates. And essentially they're uh, laws of nature that are structured in divine mind, you could say, mm -hmm. that at, at a certain point, a certain being arises who cognizes that Veda and that activates that law of nature in creation and then that next stage can unfold. Mm -hmm. so, there's, so there's kind of like this, this, like you say, template or blueprint for this and the, and the series, a sequence yeah. for that, uh, that progression to unfold in. So are you implying here that the Vedas are sort of the template for the manifestation of the universe, creation after creation? Well, uh, they're the template for creation. But it's just the Veda we use is associated with this creation, but there's also Veda associated with other creations. Hmm. Each creation having its own Veda. Well, Vedas. It's, Veda. It's, and, and they're not kind of separated per se. There, there's Veda, and within it is, is the various. There, there's a scene in... in uh, 2001. Space Odyssey. Where, yeah, where they go inside the HAL and they're... they're All right, pulling they're, out the chips. They're pulling out the chips and they're kind of like, what's it called, acrylic blocks. Yeah. And that's what they look like to me. Oh, there's like acrylic, yeah, like, there's like these acrylic blocks that contain three-dimensional experiences, like a, 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 an encoded experience kind of thing. But the, the experience is designed to awaken that law of nature. Yeah, so that's an interesting comment because for a moment there I was beginning to feel like, well, we're getting awfully speculative here and philosophical and metaphysical <laughs> and, you know, Hindu woo-woo. <laughs> but what you, yeah. what you, what you just yeah, implied... Yeah, that's the reason I don't talk about this stuff very much. Yeah. <laughs> what you just implied like is that, you know, you, you actually experience this stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you feel like, you, to all appearances, 
you have a personal life, you have friends, you have interests, you have a job, you do this, you do that, mm -hmm. you, are, you earn money, you pay taxes, you know, whatever you do. And, you know, so one might ask, well, what impact has all, all this had on your personal life? <laughs> and you might answer, I don't have a personal life. Uh, but the, by all appearances, you do. Yes. Um, yes. And I guess I'll just riff for a second more here. And does all this ha have a practical significance in, in terms of the living of an apparent personal life? If you well, had it to do all over again, would you do it all over again? Oh, yeah. Uh, has it enhanced life immeasurably over what life ordinarily is, how or, ordinar life ordinarily is lived? Yeah, and yeah. questions like that. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah the, the, the practical value is more in quality of life and uh, insight about why life is my life is the way this is or why you know there's whatever going on uh it's uh i don't know there's certain aspects of about it of it that uh periods of time where i've been kind of not offline exactly but where something dominated so much that that i was kind of like spending a lot of time just trying to work through whatever it was i mean i didn't spend two years on a park bench like like eckhart but there was you know periods of a week or you know, a month or something like that, here and there. Where you weren't overly um, very functional because you were processing something so... Yeah. This life has also been very, like I mentioned before about chapter-oriented. I have these really distinct chapters where there's kind of like this career and, and relationship and that kind of stuff like that goes on. And then it finishes and it's on to the next chapter. And that's been hard on relationships because the life keeps shifting. So do you, do you feel like somehow you process relationships much more quickly than the average person? So for what one person might take a lifetime to do, you, you work it through in a few months and then on to the next one? <laughs> well, uh, that's not my intention. I have this maybe fantasy uh, idea of having an actual relationship that lasts. And Well, I mean, I have had, certainly had relationships that have lasted, but just, you know, a long-term, like a really long-term, a lifetime yeah, like relationship. the rest of your life would, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that would be nice. And so but what happens when you have one of those in the works and, it, and then it doesn't work out? And do you find that all this kind of cosmic perspective and unity awareness and all still doesn't enable you to deal it, it, with the yeah, vicissitudes well, of human no, behavior? But it, it, and yeah, but it, no, it does give, there's a lot of insight. You know, I, I'm not, it's, it's easier to process through this stuff and, and there isn't. You're less reactive, less judgmental. Yeah, less yeah, yeah. And it's just, it's just like smoother and it's like, kind of oh God, this again? Sometimes, but it's like there's, you know, as I, it is becoming clearer that over time that's clearing. The mm -hmm. stuff is ending. And so the life is becoming much simpler. Mm -hmm. And there is little things come up here and there, but it's just nowhere near the, the drama, uh, the complexity, the concern. So, so yeah, much, a much greater quality of life in so many ways. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, you know, interesting because things keep changing and, and there's this, but, but and now it's kind of like multi-layered too, because now one of the processes we didn't get into was the way the body shifts, the body itself. There is this progression through deeper levels of, of understanding because once you become aware that your body is, you know, contains the universe kind of thing, there is this progression through like one of the layers is the devata body, where you become aware that you are, your body is, contains all the devata that manage all life forms in all universes. And so it's like your finger is this sea of these little dots of profound intelligence that are interacting and creating this finger for all beings in all universes and all time simultaneously. 
It's like, you know, yeah. so it's kind of, you know, my, my imagination just couldn't come up with some of this stuff. It's just real mind stretches sometimes well, to, to digest even. It can take a while to kind of process. Let me this, ask a mundane question and then come back yeah. to the finger okay. because this interests me. Mundane question is, if there's so much fulfillment, complete, profound fulfillment, why would you want a relationship? Or is it, be, is it because of the value of <laughs> devotion, like you said before, where no. you had this well, devotion? Well, there's that. Yeah. There's that. But there's also... I'm just a guy. Yeah. There's still a person here who has a life. I'm still uh, this householder, working through my going through my process and and going here and doing that and I got my work and the writing and the blah 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 that's going on. So on and, a per uh, there's still a personal human level which yeah, enjoys companionship yeah. and so yeah, on. Exactly, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And, and yeah, and friends and and uh, a little fun. That there's that saying the individual is cosmic, but that's the word individual is still there. Yeah. <laughs> but the individuality is kind of like this surface little point on this wholeness. Yeah. And so there's that the devata body is an expression of the cosmic body which contains all of the creation in that and it's the one that sets the form that we have there are physical forms that the various life forms do we have. each have a devata body no there's one devata, one devata body devata for our creation body. and Which one means cosmic the, the body kind yeah. of the collective conglomeration of devatas is that what the devata body is yeah. Deva, then explain yeah. devata because we haven't oh yeah devata basically means light being Impulse of intelligence. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when it's more expressed, then on a more expressed level, then you're talking about angels and gods and whatever, like that kind yeah. of stuff. But on a, a more subtle level, it's just this this profound, alive intelligence. Ocean of intelligence with impulses in it, or waves in it, yeah, or current, kind of, currents with it. Yeah, that's it. more on the level of the universe. This is a little subtler than that, but yeah, but it, that's what gives rise to that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that thing you said a minute ago about you know, the finger and structures of fingers for all creation or something like that. All, all and beings I, and all... And all, I've, all I've heard this before that, you know, people say, well, the whole universe is contained within my body. That's not my experience, so I'd like to understand it a little bit better. Obviously, everyone could say that, even though everyone may not experience that, I presume. If one person can say that, then anyone can say that. Just that the universe is contained within a human body, or is the universe also contained no, within that the, grape leaf? No, it's the, well, yes, but it, it's because it's not the human body isn't this person. This person is just an end expression. This body is just uh, an end result, an effect of processes within consciousness. So this body is actually cosmic. Yeah. And it, so it contains the universe, it contains the devata, it contains all of creation. And um, it's kind of these layers coming back. There's actually a thing, uh, one of the older articles on my site on the Mahavakyas has another thing below that where it talks about the Aham Shravir and that, where the, I am the universe, I am the devata body, I am the, I am the cosmic body, I am the, I am the Veda. And it kind of goes up in stages. You know that William Blake poem where infinity and a grain of sand, eternity in an hour and all yeah. that, something yeah. in a wildflower? Beautifully expressed. Are you saying that since this is ultimately composed of infinity, then how much infinity does it take to contain a universe? And therefore, an infinity. And therefore, in every, <laughs> since every point is an infinity, infinity and a grain of sand. Yeah, but then, it's nested, like the, I mentioned early on. Then, it's like infinity is within infinities. Yeah. Yeah. So the whole universe within the body... But that is the same thing as the universe. There's not like the universe and there's a body inside the universe that it's the universe too. It's that the body is the universe. They're the same thing. Help us understand better, because I don't even know how to ask questions to clarify this. Okay. But, you know, you've been 
in various stages of ignorance during your life. So try to put yourself in those <laughs> shoes. Put yourself in those shoes. Imagine the average listener trying to make sense of what we're saying. So what in the hell does it mean? <laughs> what does it mean to say the universe is within your body? Because by any, by well, everything it's just the experience. It's like you're sitting in, like, like I was on teacher training. So one of the experiences like, I had was know, sitting in the golden egg. I was, so I was, this is the Andromeda my, galaxy over here and the, you know, the cloud yeah. nebula over yeah, there. Yeah, actually, I once talked about uh, body stars, that there's kind of like these places on the body that correspond with various places in the galaxy, yeah, in the universe. But it depends on how you're looking at it. That's when you get into, like, some of the, the Yoga Sutras talk about um, the placement of the stars and relationship to each other and their movement, and, that, and that's, that has a relationship also with the body, too. You can't take it in a literal sense. It's like the universe has this arm over here with this finger, because yeah. that's, that's just the shape that this appearance has. It's more that it's, it's like they're different expressions of the same thing. So the universe is an expression, this body is an expression, it's the one thing. And so one expression is this person, another expression is the universe. Yeah. Another expression is uh, you. Okay, so let's say a cup is an expression of clay and a, a statue is an expression of clay. Various things are made of clay. Right. And so the stuff of which this is made, is the st since the stuff of which this cup is made is also the stuff of which everything is made, then in a sense everything is contained within this cup because yeah. it's the same stuff. Yeah. So is that the sense in which you're saying that the, uni the universe is within the body? Because what the body is made of, ultimately, is consciousness or the absolute or whatever, and the absolute contains everything. Therefore, if we appreciate the absolute level of the body, we're seeing the body as something essentially which in its essence contains everything. And there's, there's no sort of this much absolute and this much absolute. The absolute is absolute. And, yeah. and so if you're looking on the absolute level of, of things, then wherever you look, you see everything contained in every point. Yeah. Yeah, Does exactly. that make sense? Is yeah, that and it, it also goes back to what I was talking about with the unity stage, where you become everything until you reach the, the farthest point beyond perception, whatever that quote is, uh, is part of myself. And it's the same kind of process. It's just like we are everything, and it's that essence is within everything. And so you can experience yourself as this body here, or as this universe over there, or as the ant, or as, yeah. as God. So, so you are, we are everything. We are that which pervades everything. When we say we, we're not referring to this bag of bones and the, or this bag of bones. Yeah. We're referring to the essential we. Yeah. And this bag of bones is just something which enables sort of individual perception, speech, things like that. Yeah. But it's not the we that we're actually referring to when we say that we are everything or we contain everything or even the body contains everything. Yeah, right. And it, I'm, start yeah. I'm starting to get it. Yeah, yeah. No, but it, it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty abstract. But I mean, uh, one, of the, one of the things is, like I mentioned a couple of times in, in the thing, when you're in one stage, that's the reality. You know, knowledge is structured in consciousness. Knowledge, knowledge is different, different in different states, states of consciousness. consciousness. Right. Uh -huh. So the reality of self-realization is a, it's a profound shift from the reality of prior to that. But there's this other reality in unity. And there's this other reality in Brahman. And it's really useful to understand those distinctions. Because when you're reading you know, Shankara or, or Sufi poem or whatever like that, if you understand those distinctions, then you can get a sense of where they're speaking from. Because there's a lot of confusion now where people are taking Vedanta and applying that to self-realization. Mm -hmm. 
And self-realization is in there, but most of Vedanta is more about unity yeah. in Brahman. Beyond self-realization. Yeah, yeah. And so when they're talking about oneness and they're talking about the nature of the world, like there's a huge distinction between the world as an illusion and the world never happened. You can use those as similar ways in a sentence to describe, you know, to try and describe something. But in the sense of the reality of it, they're two completely different realities, very distinct. And in between that is this whole other reality, and neither of them seem to be compatible. But what happens with Brahman is it becomes inclusive of all of it. And then it's just a matter of, okay, if you put your attention here, then you can talk in a unity context and, and describe in a certain way, uh, whatever like that. But the fundamental reality is extremely abstract and and very difficult to describe. And it's not something like a, even somebody in unity has trouble con understanding Brahman. So, yeah, it's not something, you know, Lauren just says, don't try to figure it out. It's not, it's not something the mind can grasp. It's One thing I think you're trying there. to do, though, and which I'm hoping to be contributing to, to some degree, is to achieve greater clarity in our culture, in our, in our larger spiritual community, as to you know, what all these terms mean, what awakening means, what enlightenment means, what stages there may be. Because are there really as many kind of like realities to the unfoldment of enlightenment as there are people? Or is there sort of a, a roadmap which we all understand approximately and experience to some degree of clarity, but which if we all had perfect understanding and perfect clarity, we would be unanimous in our yeah. understanding and agreement of, about Yeah, and, that, and that's one of the things I'm, I'm working on. You know, I've had the, the pleasure, you know, going on, particularly from going on uh, Lauren and Lucia retreats, is, is seeing a lot of people go through these shifts. And so it's given me a lot of material to understand the variations, but also to understand the underlying process. Mm -hmm. So what's the underlying process? And then, you know, how are there these variations? Like I found there's five typical ways that people will subjectively experience the initial self-realization shift. And of course, there's huge variations in the intensity of, of purification or experiences that may or may not come with it and all this, you know, variations that go on. They're dominant guna at the time, you know, whether it's sattva or rajas or, or tamas. And the, all these different things will affect the subjective experience. Yeah. Also, the kind of techniques that they use, because uh, that it, cultures a certain kind of awareness. And so there's all this variation, but there's also this underlying process that's taking place. And that's what I was talking about earlier on. You know, there was clarifying about there's this witness thing that can happen separately from the awakening, or it may happen together with it, because it's not really that far from makra to the crown, bindu. But what's the underlying process that's happening behind that? And, and that distinction about a self-realization, that it's, there's self-awakening, but there's the actual awakening is when self wakes up to itself, not just that we become aware that there's a self, but I mean, we can call that an awakening, but the real awakening that we're looking for is when self wakes up to itself through this apparent form. Yeah. That's the actual self-realization shift that's so important. Broader question is, do you feel like it's theoretically possible to, if you tried to use um, the understanding of the topography of North America that was current when Lewis and Clark first went west to navigate from St. Louis to Portland now, you wouldn't get very far. You'd end up in some river pretty soon you know, <laughs> or something. Yeah, you know, you'd yeah. be trying to follow the Oregon Trail, which no longer actually exists. Yeah. 
but these days, of course, with satellite mapping and GPS and all that stuff, we understand the topography of North America and the whole world very precisely, right down to the square foot, more or less. Do you feel that, that spiritually speaking, we could arrive at a, a state of understanding as a culture which uh, would be like our modern understanding of the topography of North America as compared with our, uh, our current understanding, which would be more Lewis and Clark-like in its, in yeah. its uh, accuracy? Yeah, very much. And there's a couple of things um, about that one is that that yes that is it's perfectly uh, easy to define it much more clearly than than so over the next so couple hundred years or something we might uh, have yeah perhaps and, yeah that's yeah. one of the things I'm working on a book I'm hoping to get published mm -hmm. in the next little while and that's basically what it's about is what is that process that unfolds and that's it's interesting too because there are some teachers who either discourage talking about stages or deny there are stages. Well, I think they're but just being simplistic. They're just thinking, okay, it's all unity. How can there be stages in unity? Yeah, you yeah. Know, uh, right. There's some, there can be some of that kind of thing. But one of the common themes in there is concepts of a process are a barrier to the process itself. And that's true. Our concepts about it are a barrier. Really? But a concept, so watching this interview might be an impediment to people? <laughs> well, it depends on the approach they're taking to it. But a, a concept of no stages is the same barrier as a concept of stages. Because what happens when the stages start to unfold? Then it's like, OK, what the heck's going on? There's not supposed to be any yeah. stages. Like, I was a little confused early on because I started witnessing, and that was supposed to mean this other thing that it, it, it didn't. So maybe and, you know, concepts so. are okay if you take them lightly. Yeah, you take them lightly. It's like a map. You, a map is, can be very useful when you're going to someplace new, and when you get there, you put it down. But do you deny a person a map because it might... Uh, or because a map of Montana doesn't actually resemble the way Montana's going to look when you yeah, get there. Yeah. <laughs> or, or you use Google Street View, and you, and you discover that it's a little bit off, and, <laughs> and the dentist was actually a half a block down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind of, so yeah, it, it can still, it's not like it's a perfect answer. And, you know, I remember Lauren saying that, that our concepts of enlightenment can be one of the last barriers to it, especially with people who've been on the path for a long time and have really, have studied this stuff more formally. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be aware of the process. And there's, there's a, actually in, in the seventh mandala, the Rig Ved, there's a place where the sage Vasishta mentions the importance of desiring unity once self-realization happens. But how are we going to desire unity if we don't know it's there? It exists, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's the thing. Is you need to understand that there's a process and there's distinct stages. How you're going to experience it will vary. An example I use sometimes is purity. Purity, there's a standard process that happens for everybody, but different people will experience it very differently. Sometimes it's the quiet little thing and sometimes it's more challenging. Yeah, I mean, I was just talking to a friend uh, today about how it seems that so many people have a certain sort of awakening and reach a sort of a stage and feel like they're done. You know, there's something so gratifying oh, yeah. or, or self-sufficient about whatever they are experiencing that they feel like, well, this is it. There couldn't be anything yeah. more than oh, yeah. this. No, I, I experienced that myself. I, yeah. It's like the seekers died. I feel complete. I'm infinite. I'm liberated. What more could there be? Yeah. <laughs> like everything. Right. So... Yeah, so it's, it's good to know that there's more. Keep so that's, on going. that's a phase. Yeah, yeah. it's like a phase. Yeah. I think what people kind of react to is that you know to forever follow the dangling carrot. You can sort of deny yourself the appreciation of to the degree to which you've actually already arrived. Yeah, and earlier I talked about these stages of bliss thing too, and and lots of people go through a fairly long protracted process after a shift where there isn't bliss. It's just this unpacking, clearing house process that goes on for a while. Sometimes people look at enlightenment as some kind of escape from their life. But it's the opposite, actually. It moves you much more fully into your life. Because to, you, you can't wake up unless you're willing to be here and be present to it and be willing to face what's here. Otherwise, it just doesn't work.
I remember I, I decided to write a post one time, and it's the myths of enlightenment. There's a whole long, I can't remember, a whole long about list of, uh, about what it's not. What it's you not. know, it's not this, it's not this. Mm -hmm. Well, like, one, one good example is that I want to wake up but you will never wake up. The person doesn't right. wake up, the ego doesn't wake up. The person wakes up from the ego. Right. It's the self that wakes up and wakes up from the ego. And yet for many, many years of my life, I was wanting to become enlightened, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Damn it, I'm gonna bust gut trying. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and darn if it turned out, that was a, that was a mistake. Yeah. I'm never gonna get enlightened. You mentioned Lauren a lot of times, Lauren and Lucia, and yeah. uh, you and I are here to do a retreat with them. How many retreats have you done with them? Maybe a dozen, twenty? Yeah, a dozen or so. Yeah. I don't know. I've lost track. As much as you've progressed, which seems to be to a very significant degree, you still find value in coming back to these retreats. Oh, yeah. Is it because you just want to get a nice deep rest, or do you feel like there's yet more to appreciate or unfold? Well, there's, and, well, there's definitely more to unfold. These retreats I'm not, are conducive I'm to not, that. I'm not finished. Yeah. One of the things is with, with the Is Brahmin, anyone ever finished? Well, in this time, not really. There isn't enough time to finish because once, once you have the Brahman shift, you're done with stages of development in consciousness. Mm -hmm. There is no longer that. But, but the refinement side, uh -huh. that's essentially could go on for hundreds of years. Yeah. So that's a, a, essentially an indefinite process. So consciousness of, itself doesn't develop anymore, but the apparatus through which consciousness yeah. lives and it becomes life more can integration, be more, and more refined. More integration, more embodied, more refined, subtle, the, the, more whole process, the whole more process. Subtle, yeah. I mean, that's amazing. Some of this stuff I've had no idea. I mean, like, uh, you've heard of the absolute body? Yes. The term? Yeah. So it's like, for me, this body is not an individual body anymore. Mm -hmm. It's an absolute body. And there's this process that's taken place where, and guided by the forms of God, where certain things of gifts have been given. I don't know what you call it that. Things have been arranged, organized, and then certain laws of nature woken up. There's a cognitory process there where the law of nature is woken up, and then it's blended with other existing awake laws and created this new synergy. And that now is part of the process of me living this life. I walk around and I'm doing things and I'm still, you know, living a you know householder's life and all that kind of thing. But Behind that is a whole other process taking place that's completely unrelated to this apparent form and the activity, but there's this process of processing creation going on all the time now in mm -hmm. the background. So earlier you were talking about like the, the five koshas and it's like subtle bodies. Well, there's seven actually. Seven, seven koshas yeah. and so on. Yeah. And I'm just using that as an analogy now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so when you mention absolute body, I mean, this body is aging and will probably die in yeah. 20, 30, 40 years or whatever. The, the, surf, the surface value of it is going is subject to karma yeah. and that whole thing. But you're saying there's an absolute body, which... Is behind the cosmic, yeah. It's like Is it's, that in a sense more your, your real body? I mean, do you sort of, I hate to use yeah. the word identify, but do you identify with that body more than this? This one? No. It's there. This is here. There's the other kosher layers are here. Mm -hmm. There's this mind and intellect that are very active and blah blah. And, so what will happen when it, this body drops off? Then I take a step back. Is there still a vehicle of some sort? Yeah. Even yeah. though you would, you don't want to say I am enlightened, but even though you are a liberated being, let's say, there's still a vehicle once this body drops off. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, the, and what the nature and purpose of that yeah, vehicle is? One of the one of the interesting things about like I mentioned about time a little bit before, time is like a dimension in a sense of space. It's forward and backwards. I know something of the future as well. Not sort of like what's going to happen tomorrow, that kind of thing, but more like the broader future. Not like uh, but where it, the but, stock market is going to be in a week or something. Yeah, yeah, no, it's not that kind of detail. But because my consciousness 
or whatever you want to call it, the, the thing is, is higher than, it's distorted. The consciousness is continuing to evolve, so at that point in the future, it's distorted. So it's hard to... to it's hard to, to, to grok what... Exactly. It's because not, it's you're like, not in that state going, of consciousness yet. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I there's see. this reality taking place, and so I have this sense of it. And for me, now I understand there's a, why this unfolding is taking place. Mm -hmm. It's not actually even for this lifetime. It's mm -hmm. for, for later on. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of, just kind of like a training ground where I can kind of clean up the karma and have these shifts so that it's, it's established and I can carry that forward. Yeah, it's funny, you know. I mean, most of the time, most of my friends, I don't, I don't talk like this. So most people I know, I, I just we talk about the movies or, yeah. or uh, you know, good restaurants or whatever like that, and have a normal life. You know, even people that are quite close to me, often I don't get into a lot of this stuff because this is so abstract and. Well, you and know me. This is, this is all I'm interested in. <laughs> yeah, I also yeah. like movies and restaurants. Though. Yeah, yeah. No, it's pretty. It's pretty wild. I mean, in some ways. I mean, it's just kind of this process that's been unfolding, and over time, I'm less and less in the process it's just taking place there's just this unfolding oh what's what surprise will come up today or what, what will happen now what will unfold now and it's interesting too because when i describe the shift with the new law of nature coming online this isn't a local thing it's, it's happening cosmically right and so this is taking place this is shifting the creation as a whole it's taking place on on that level so there's this person having this experience here and this apparent absolute body moving through itself and shifting itself. But it's taking place on a cosmic level, so it's doing that on all the levels that are expressed from that. I don't totally understand that, but I don't yeah, know no, if I it's, want it's it. Hard to, it's hard to yeah. describe. But it's interesting because it's taking place, because for me it's like a marker for what's taking place in the evolution of group consciousness. Mm -hmm. And that's a useful thing to make a note of, by the way. The, well, maybe uh, you're kind of an outlier, and there are other people who are going through similar shifts, and all are sort of being in some sort of training or preparatory phase for what is yeah. to come. Yeah, and that's happening. And, and you know, I was more, I've become more conscious of that over time. So you're not one of these people who wants to just sort of be out of here and, you know, get off the wheel and never exist in any way, shape, or form again. <laughs> you sense, I think, that there's a role to play and yeah. uh, you're willing to play it and ha happy to play it. Yeah, no, it's interesting, actually. There's a, there's a Jyotish, it's a Vedic astrology thing that where you talk about your stuff. In there they can talk about your expected time of, of death. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, they, they told me that I, I'll have a choice. <laughs> and when my karma is done, to be to be done with it, or to continue on. So it'll be interesting. Not to, see to continue what on this body, but continue, Not to continue on. on this body. Who knows? Like I'll you could live happens. to be 300 if you wanted to, or something. I don't know. Beyond reckoning is what they said. Huh. But I don't know what that means. It's just you know, it's like one of those sort of. Who you know, told you this? Uh, Jyotish. Well, two Jyotishes actually Jyotish. told me this at different times. Well, we'll yeah, see. but but we'll there, see. There's like, not too many examples of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, well, but we're in a time where things are changing. It's true. Uh, a lot. Yeah. And one of the things that's really important to understand with this too is it's an inside-out process. So it's taking place in consciousness and moving forward gradually. And so, the last place you see it is on the surface. Yeah. Yeah, and and so it's not for for a lot of people. It looks like things are going south really badly yeah. in a lot of ways, and certainly there there is a call. You know, some things are being pushed to the surface to be seen and, and taken care of, mm -hmm. but it's actually a sign of of purification, of cleaning out, not of not end times. Right. Yeah, and in fact, I was just talking to Canella last night, and we were talking about how these 
things keep happening, like the, Ferg the shooting in Ferguson, Missouri, and that becomes a whole consciousness-raising thing about yeah. Black Lives Matter, or something happens with gay rights or something, and that shifts the culture. Yeah. The culture yeah. seems to be shifting with greater and greater rapidity, exactly. and yeah. these different events that come up seem to be catalysts for that. Yeah. And the, and the way that all relates to this conversation, I believe, is that there's a huge spiritual awakening taking place in the world. It's Define. not just a matter of cultural changes and, or attitudes about black people or gay people or whatever. It's, it's, there's something much more fundamental than that taking place. Oh, yeah. and, and it's so astounding. I mean, I, I spent all this time you know, on a spiritual path. For a long time, I could count on one hand the number of people I had met that were awake in any kind of way. Mm -hmm. And so often, the stories about somebody being awake turn out to be... Well, they had some good experiences, yeah. yeah, for a little while. But now it's just a whole different thing. It's it's like, I mean, you've got your show with, yeah. with, uh, with all these people that have come on it, various stages of development and that, and dozens of people I know. And, and these retreats, too. You know, when I first started coming on the retreats, there was a few people who had shifted. Now they're the majority, usually, it has shifted in some way. Mm -hmm. And there's people at all different stages now. So it's this complete diversity. And yeah. so even just sitting, having a meal, uh, on the retreat is like presence. It's just really, mm. it's really nice. So I don't know yet whether I'm going to interview Lauren and Lucia. Lauren is sort of, Lauren doesn't want a big, huge wave of publicity and, and interest, but just the fact that I'm doing this interview and I'll be interviewing Claire Blanchflower after this, he's going to get some publicity whether he likes it or not. So people are going to be interested. Who is this Lauren guy? That, you know, and where are these retreats? And how do I get into them? So I guess the one question is, you know, you and I have a TM background. Probably a lot of people on these retreats do, but a lot of people who are listening to this interview are not going to have had one. So how relevant would all this be to them? Oh yeah, Lauren, Lauren when he first started out, he had uh, TM terminology was what he was familiar with, but he's become over time much more generic terms and stuff like that, moved, moved away from that a lot. And certainly, you know, the people who know him and, and who are friends of friends and stuff that made these connections, a lot of people have TM backgrounds on the retreats, but it's by no means everybody, not at all. And there's quite a diversity and, and there's the people uh, you'll find out from Claire doesn't have a TM background, does she? No. no. And actually, she learned TM after her uh -huh. later shift. So it's like some people are waking up and then learning a TM or, 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 or not. Or not. Or not. Right. They just have their, they have their do you feel, path. Do you see that in terms of the track record of people awakening that the TM people have some kind of advantage or really not? Well, people who have been meditating for a long time have pros and cons because they've got a lot of more clarity usually. Mm -hmm. So the, the shift is clearer. But they also can have stronger concepts and are more kind of like seeing everything going on so the, the ego is kind of like trying to manage things trying to fit everything shoehorn everything into the structure that they've right, so carefully right. but, but built it's just also but it's one of the things about the ego is is it's like when you start the ego doesn't want you to see through the ego because once you see past it once you see through it it's it's toast yeah. so there's kind of like this dance that can happen and and one of the ways it does that is with concepts and and it mm -hmm. kind of dances the stuff up and does this la 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 thing when you when you, whenever you try and you know, some in some insight comes through and then it's like blah and, and it's a little dance that happens sometimes in, in that approach. And so that clarity can be very helpful, especially after the shift, because then you can move through it quickly. But it can be a little bit more challenging to make the shift itself yeah. when there's that clarity too. So it's, it, that's where this is really helpful too, because when you're in a group like this, being with the awake, then that, the, the awakeness is more lively. Yeah. So it's easier for that awakeness to happen in a, in a lively place. I hope I do get to interview Lauren because I think it'll be interesting, if, especially if we do it at the end of this weekend and I've gone through the whole experience. Because when you say people who have shifted, 
I don't even know if I count myself among them. I've certainly undergone huge transformations over the decades, and if I were to describe my experience to you, there's a lot of stuff that I think you'd find interesting and, and significant, but I'm just not sure what is meant anymore by a shift, because it's like if, if someone asked me if I'm awake, I, I, my answer would probably be, well, I'm awaker than I used to be and probably less awake than I will be. That's these two yeah. But there has been no... The oozer, you know, yeah, people that kind of oozes through There's the been process. no grand irreversible watershed moment, you know. Right, which, right. Yeah, like I, like I described which maybe you described as the Makara thing. For me, yeah, but, but macro, yeah, that was... But, but I don't feel like I'm falling back shift. anymore. Into, yeah, yeah. You know. well, my, 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 yeah, well, the, the, one of my, my shift was quite distinct as well, because one of the things, like I mentioned, the five ways that that happens, and one of them is just kind of like this, this gradual process, yeah. and eventually, somewhere down the road, you kind of realize, oh, I, I'm not falling back, it's just, it's here all the time, it's, there's this continuity yeah. of awareness, uh, I just am, and I'm not being caught by stuff so much anymore, and it's just kind of a more well, that, gradual... All that describes my experience, and yeah. yet I don't think I have lucid dreaming, at least not consistently. I don't, as far as I know, I'm not witnessing 24-7. Yeah, but, but you go on long courses where you get into the, you know, go deep and... Go more and, rested. And, yeah, go more rested. Yeah. You're much more likely to get the clarity on a long yeah. course. But, you know, on the other hand, I don't really care because I'm, I'm enjoying the whole unfoldment, and I, I don't have any sort of burning desperation to be to point X by such and such a time or anything, I'm, I'm happy to sort of let it unfold as it unfolds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's a good approach to take. Yeah. Yeah. And if we all have our own different processes and stuff, and, and look what you're doing, and really overtly in the world, and bringing this out to so many people. Yeah, it's, uh, it's perhaps a, a fair dose of ignorance is useful in this capacity, <laughs> to be able to ask the right questions or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah no, it's one of the things about, you know, I, I remember there was one point going along, I, I could not remember what it was like to have an ego, it was just like, uh. I just, it just, it was gone, you know? So there was no reference point for that. And in a sense of being identified with it, I mean, actually that's something I should clarify too, because like I experienced a sense of ego death in this process, but it's not actually the ego itself that dies, it's the identification with the ego that ends, that breaks up. And you're still a, a person here that has preferences and habits and tastes, whatever like that. Sure. But um, it's just that that's not the center anymore. It's yeah. just a, it's just like a, your little thumb or something. Or, baby finger. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, a lot of times, you know, when I interview somebody, they are a teacher, they're doing satsangs, they're doing Skype consultations, they've written a book, and you only would touch on one of those points, which is that you're writing a book, yeah. and it will be available sooner or later, eventually. Mm -hmm. Do you have any inclination whatsoever to, like, interact with people on, in Skype consultations, you know, <laughs> for some compensation or, or whatever? I don't know. I, I have never considered it. I, I don't Oh, yeah, I'm a writer, yeah. so I have my blog, and I and I write there, and yeah. and now I'm compiling the core stuff for the for the stages process to understand mm -hmm. the different stages and the underlying process and the variations. That's kind of what I'm I'm working on. Can people book. submit questions through their through your blog if they yeah. like like yeah. you to write about something, for instance, and and uh, they have sure. a question? And then you can. Yeah. I noticed a lot of times in our interaction between you and I and some other friends that that's been grist for the mill in, in a sense, oh, yeah. giving yeah. you something interesting to write about. Exactly, on your blog. Yeah. and and just responding. Uh, there's a few discussion groups I, I chat in sometimes, and sometimes something comes out that's like, oh, that's interesting. Because one of the things for me is I, I actually learn by the writing process, because it's, it's like writing through me. So it's kind of like, yeah. so I kind of write something, and then it's like, 
Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Like, well, that cognitions thing I wrote recently, the three stages of cognition. Uh -huh. I, I didn't know that. Huh. It just kind of came out. And then I realized, oh, yeah, that was that stage and that was that stage. And, yeah. you know, kind of, I should so. mention, actually, that Buddha at the Gas Pump has a, there's a Yahoo group associated with it. You, and you can find a link to that on the BatGap site. It's down on the, it's kind of you know, obscure. It's down, you have to scroll down. It's in the right-hand column someplace. But David is very active in that Yahoo group. And uh, just recently, it, the whole group seems to have become a bit more active. Um, so if people would like to sort of engage in conversations with you, that might be one place where they could yeah. do so. And I have a comment form on the... On your on Davidia. The, not comment form, what do you call it? Contact form on the davidia.ca website. And so people can email me. It depends on what it's about. I mean, I have expertise in, in this process, but not in other areas so much. Okay. So you don't see yourself in any kind of a teaching role at this stage in your life or anything like that? Well, for me, it's, it's like I'm living the life and what, what am I being called to do? And I'm being called to write, so I'm writing and, yeah. and, and kind of like seeing where life goes. And it kind of goes in interesting directions. It's sort of I'm, I'm making choices and decisions like any householder, but at the same time, there's this deeper flow that's coming through my life that is taking it in directions that are, are not planned or whatever. It's just kind of surprise. Yeah. Like I, I now live on the island. And uh, various things have shifted that uh, I didn't anticipate. But uh, yeah. you'll be speaking at the Sand Conference. David and I are both going to be sharing the same time block at the Science and Non-Duality Conference uh, in late October. First, I'll speak, and then I'll introduce David, and then he'll speak. We each have about 40 minutes or so. I'll be speaking on the stages. Yeah. It's an important message, I think, in that environment, just to get that process. So when you're when you're looking at these old texts or where, where a teacher is speaking, where they're speaking from, you know, like that. All right, well, anything you want to add in conclusion at this stage? Obviously, there's always more to say, and, yeah, yeah. and you write all kinds of things, and people can subscribe to that. But, you know, have we covered everything that you consider to be important in this context? No. Pretty, no. <laughs> we could go on for hours. So. Yeah, we could. <laughs> yeah. There's so, much, there's so much to it. It's a big arena. Yeah, it's funny. I did an interview one time about a year ago with someone, and, and her basic point was, I don't exist, I'm not a person. Whatever I asked, that would be the basic answer. And after, it was the shortest interview I ever did. After a little while, I thought, well, I guess there's nothing more to talk about here. But, you know, what I appreciate about your orientation, which some people from that perspective might consider much too complicated and nuanced yeah, and yeah. detailed, and what is all that stuff? You know, I just don't want to not exist and I'm not a person. A lot simpler. But it is, but I don't think it's, it's not the here. end of the line either yeah. for her yeah. or anyone. Yeah. I, I just think that, you know, the course of evolution is vast and multifarious, and, uh, and I, I really appreciate the sort of degree to which you have um, come to experience and understand it. It's fulfilling for me to talk with someone who has that orientation. Not that I myself have traversed it to that extent, certainly not, but I know that, that the territory exists. And so it's interesting to talk to someone who has explored that territory in greater detail than I have. And I think it helps the, the spiritual culture, as I was saying earlier, in understanding that I mean, simplicity is good, but, but being simplistic is not. And if we're really interested in understanding reality, then we should be willing to accept that, uh, what is it, Jesus said, in my Father's house there are many mansions, that, that reality is far more multifarious and mysterious and detailed and vast yeah. than our little concepts might have done justice to. Yeah, yeah, it's an astonishingly large place. <laughs> and I'm sure there's aspects I've never even run into or whatever. Every yeah. so often I read somebody else talking about something and it's like the whole other side of it that I'd never noticed.
it's great fun to what could be more interesting what, what, a, what way to spend one's life could be more fascinating it's certainly been an adventure great well uh, let me wrap it up then because um, we could go on and on but yeah. I think I'm going to do another interview in a few minutes if Claire has arrived the sun's coming out might have to wear the sunglasses for the next one but as you know you've been listening to an interview on Buddha at the gas pump with David Buckland there have been many of these interviews so far, 300 and something, and there will hopefully be many, many more. So if you'd like to check out ones done previously, go to batgap.com, explore the past interviews menus, some of which David was very instrumental in developing for me. There's a whole categorical index that he created for the site. Check out other aspects of the site. It's all pretty self-explanatory. I never failed to mention the donate button because my engagement into this, as extensive as it is, wouldn't be possible without the support of appreciative viewers. I've had people notify me in the last few weeks saying, what happened? Are you all right? You haven't been posting any interviews lately. There's a thing where you can sign up to be notified by email each time there's a new interview. Some lady said, I come to the site every day and there's no new interview. You don't have to do that. You sign up for the thing to be notified when there's a new interview and you'll get an email when it's posted. So that menu is there. There's an audio podcast uh, because many people don't like to sit in front of their computers any more than they already do, so you can just listen to this in audio. There's a subscribe page for that that lets you sign up on iTunes or Android or different devices. There's some other stuff. Check out the menus. In fact, there's things that David helped me develop. He even helped put up a page where we have a Bat Gap theme song ringtone for your <laughs> phone and a screensaver and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> Maybe I'll have you working on the t-shirt next. <laughs> yeah. So thanks for listening or watching. Uh, it's really been a joy talking with you, David. And uh, we'll do more. To those watching, we'll see you in the next one.